My name is David Hopper. I am excited to be speaking with you guys today. I am one of the equipping pastors here at the church. We're going to be opening the word today in Ruth, the book of Ruth. And we're starting a two-part series. It's going to be this week and next week. And the name of this series is God Still Has a Plan for You. And I like this title a lot because we find ourselves many times in this world in sort of a, a rut in which we are just thinking, what is God doing? Does God even remember that I am here? Does God know what I'm doing? Does God have a plan for me? You sort of, every once in a while, will feel God has a plan for you, but then as life and the mundane and the day-to-day tasks come, we find ourselves sometimes in the midst of wondering, has God forgotten where I am? As you open the book of Ruth, you'll find it near the beginning of your Bible. It's just after Judges, uh, right before 1 Samuel, about 350 pages in, if you want to count them right now. I, um, I, I like this book a lot because it's a love story, and love stories are always fun, right, guys? Amen? God, you, you're going to have to wake up. You're going to have to be with me, all right? I want to ask you a question right here at the beginning. What was God's greatest achievement? Many people would answer creation. If you went around and you went to the malls and you just started asking people, what was God's greatest creation? Just did it very vague. They'd probably look around and say, well, this. Look around, the mountains, the majestic mountains and the ocean, especially here in Southern California. We get to see God's glory all the time. And if you look at human beings and the human spirit, it's just fascinating And now with the Hubble telescope and being able to see into space and those images, they're beyond our imagination. And those are like billions of stars. Creation, that's a great answer. But as we look at the Bible and what it says about creation, we see two chapters in Genesis talk about it. We see a few of the Psalms mention it. In Job, there's two chapters. In Isaiah, there's two chapters. This is what he speaks of creation. As opposed to redemption. Now, redemption, this is a word that represents how we get to spend eternity with our God. This is the word in which it means Jesus went to the cross, died for our sins, so that we could then be with God forever. When he rose again, he defeated death. Redemption. He speaks of redemption on every page in the Bible. He's constantly showing us more and more about this. Another way to look at it is what did, what did this cost God? Creation, a few words, some breath. He spoke it into existence. Redemption cost him his son going to the cross. It's a big deal to him. And so when we open the book of Ruth, we are basically seeing a story. It's a true story. And on these pages, it's, the, it's showing us how important redemption is and how important we are in his plan and that he's always thinking about us, that we were created before earth. We were there before time, that God had us in mind, and he's always intertwining our life in a way that's going to bring this masterpiece together. And Ruth shows us this in an incredible way. You need to know a little bit of backstory about Ruth. What happens, it really starts with a girl named Naomi. And Naomi uh, is married to a guy named Elimelech. And they are Jews, 
And when they uh, find a situation where there's just poverty like crazy, there's a famine going on, they have to move to where the food is. So they end up moving to Moab. Moab is an idol-worshiping, um, very, it's a rough society. It was, a, it was not where you wanted to be. It's not where the Jews wanted to be. But that's where the food was, so they had to go. And so there they are in Moab, and they're there for many years. They have two sons, and their sons marry Moabite women because they live in this land. And I want you to start to personalize this story at the beginning. Personalize it for yourself. You find yourself in your Belinda or wherever around here in the U.S. I wouldn't call it an idol-worshiping pagan society. Uh, you could go that far if you thought about what idol means and how it's something that you worship and, and where people worship and spend all their time. You could do that, but basically you're in a foreign land. We're called as ambassadors in a foreign land all over the place. All over the Bible it says that we are ambassadors from somewhere where we want to be. Our heart isn't, is never quite right because there's somewhere that we want to be. We don't quite understand that because it's a heaven and we haven't been there yet, but we know there's something sort of missing. But we're here. This is where God has us. This is where we're raising our kids. This is where we work. Uh, we live here. We exist here. Our kids are marrying here. So we're in this position. And so now we say, God, what are you doing? So Naomi finds herself in Moab. This is where God has brought her. And what are you doing, Lord? As time goes on, her husband dies, and then her two sons die, and all of a sudden, she just feels lost. In fact, she tells everyone to call her Mara. I want my new name to be Mara, in which means bitterness. I want my new name to be bitterness. Everyone just call me bitterness. That's how she felt. It's a pretty desperate position that she's in. And so she tells her two uh, daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, she says, I'm going to go back to my homeland, going back to the Jews. But you really, and they all are crying, and they're saying, we'll come with you, we'll come with you. And she says, no. You can see this in the first chapter. I need you to stay here because, to be honest with you, if you come with me, you are never going to be married again. The Jews do not marry Moab women. We were here, our sons were here, so they married you. But if you come back with me, there is no way that you'll be married again. And you don't have kids. And so you're going to be basically in a foreign land. We're going to be poverty stricken. We'll have no money. You'll have no way of remarrying. You need to stay here. And Orpah says, you know what, you're right. No, she says it very endearing. But she's like, I'm going to go ahead and stay here. But Ruth, Ruth says in a couple verses later, I'm going with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. It's a really special, special verse because what you see from Ruth is she basically says, I'm all in. With Naomi, as you personalize it, you understand that there is still a reason that God has created her, but we don't understand it yet. With Ruth, what we see is someone who says, your God is big enough. I've seen enough in you that I want this God I'm willing to follow this God. I'm willing to follow you in this position and wherever you go, your people are my people, your God are my God, I'm all in. It's a position that sometimes many of you are in in which you don't understand what God's doing. And it's beautiful to watch because you say, you know what, I don't know what God's doing, but he has me here now. 
I'm gonna be faithful with where he has me. I'm gonna step up and just continue to press forward because I've seen enough of this God. I've seen, I've seen enough of what he does in, in people around me that I'm in and I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna follow it. I'm all in. I love to see that and some of you are there. It's a great place to be. As you enter chapter two, the hero of the story comes out. His name is Boaz. It's a strong name. It's a powerful name. In fact, the name literally means in him there is strength. When Solomon later is building the temple, he has two pillars. and names one of the pillars Boaz. It's a big deal. When we see the name Boaz, we see in the line of Christ as one of the people in the line of Christ. This, this guy named Boaz is a big deal. He's an elder of this community. He's a wealthy landowner. Um, we see him at the gates, which means he's some sort of way involved in the politics because all the political things would happen at the gate. So this guy is a big deal, and he's the hero of our story because what happens is when Ruth and Naomi return, Ruth is out gleaning. Gleaning is the welfare system of the day. The way the welfare system works in that time period is as a landowner, you could go through your land and pick up all the harvest, the grain, whatever it is that you were growing. You could go through and pick it all up in one passing. But anything that you missed or dropped out of your bag, you could not pick up. You had to leave it so that those that were destitute or widows or whoever needed it could then come through afterwards and pick up that and they would live off of that. So Ruth is in that position and she's out gleaning and she just happens to be gleaning in Boaz's field. And Boaz notices Ruth and says, who's that? There's a little sparkle and they start running towards each other and the music plays behind them. It's, it's a beautiful scene. And he tells all his servants, he says, you know what? In front of Ruth, I want you to drop a little bit of extra stuff. So she's really blessed. And I want you, when she's thirsty, let her drink from our water, which was a big deal. And he, he said, protect her. And all of this happens. And then they get to chapter three, when Ruth returns to Naomi, Naomi notices that she has a lot of extra grain. Like this isn't a normal amount. She says, what field were you in? And when she says, I was in this landowner named Boaz's field, it all clicks for Naomi. Naomi realizes a couple things. And there's a couple things that we need to understand about this time period. One was the way that land rights worked. See, land rights for a Jew, you never lose. But when you're in a position where you need money, you're just, it's poverty, it's famine, you need food, you, you have to get money. You can sell your land rights, but you don't actually sell them. What we would call it is a lease. They'd call it selling and they give a deed, but on the back of the deed would be all of these, these ways that you could redeem your land rights later. So even if your husband died, so Elimelech dies, well, even though he dies, someone who is a close uh, kinsman can come and redeem the rights. And when Ruth says Boaz, all of a sudden Naomi realizes Boaz is a close relative. He can redeem the land rights of Elimelech. And she's all, oh, this is perfect. This is amazing. And there's another law that comes in. It's called the law of the Levite marriage. In this, what happens is if you die, or no, if your husband dies and you're a widow and you haven't had kids, it's a different time period. You could go to a close relative and say, I need you to marry me so that I can have kids. And then my husband's line will continue. Like I said, very different time period. 
There were, there were three rules for this, though. First of all, it had to be someone who was a close relative. They had to be able to have kids. And third, they had to be okay with it. They didn't have to do it. If they didn't do it, they'd take off their shoe and they would give it to the woman. And it was a way of saying, uh, disrespect on me. Like, not the woman, but the guy saying, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Here's my shoe. <laughs> really. <laughs> it's a really funny funny system. Well, Naomi, again, it all clicks that Ruth's husband has died without her having kids. And here is this, this close relative that can, can redeem the Leverite marriage, can redeem Elimelech's field, and has shown a very special interest in Ruth, finds Ruth, there's something about her that's special. The only thing that would hold it back at this point is that Ruth is a Moab woman. And Jews and Moab women do not come together. So Ruth goes back to Boaz and says, you are a close relative. I need you to do all of this stuff. And Boaz is absolutely, I would love to. But this is the part of the movie, if we're watching it, in which you know it, there has to be a twist. There has to be a way that it won't all be magical. It, won't, it has to be that special ending He says, there is a closer relative than me. And you have to remember, there's a lot of land rights coming in this. So this closer relative is going to see this land and go, oh, okay, yeah, I would love to redeem that land. And so Boaz goes and talks to the closer relative and tells him what happened and how Naomi is back in Elimelech's field. And and so this other closer relative says, yes, absolutely, I will redeem. And everyone watching goes, no, no. You're ruining the love story. But Boaz continues in the next verse and says, but when you redeem those rights, you also need to take Ruth as your wife so that the line can continue. The, 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 the line of, of, you know, the baby, whatever. You got it. You get it. It can continue on. Well, this guy, for some reason, says, oh, no, I can't do that. And most likely, it's because she is a Moabite woman. We don't, he doesn't say that, but most likely that's the reason. And so he says no, and Boaz says yes, and they live happily ever after. In fact, in verse 13 of chapter 4, it actually speaks of them having a child together, and it was beautiful. Then it goes on in verse 17, and everyone comes up to Naomi, and Naomi, uh, they're, they're talking to Naomi, and they're saying, how blessed you are. You now have a child. His name is Obed, and it's actually her grandchild. But Obed is a very special character. It's the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, who is in the line of Christ. There is this very special thing that happens. And all the way, I love it because it begins with Naomi, and it ends with Naomi. And here is Naomi thinking the world has ended, and God has forgotten her. But God had a plan all the way through had a beautiful plan in which he was going to use Naomi through this process. He still had a plan for her. The question is, why in the world would Boaz marry this Moabite woman? Even if, even if she was this incredibly attractive, I, I just blessed, uh, wonderful girl, it's still a Moab woman, and they just didn't do that. The answer to that question is actually found in Joshua chapter two. And this is how far in advance that God was working. 
In Joshua chapter two, we see Joshua send two spies to Jericho. They're entering the promised land and they're looking at Jericho and there is this city that is just this massive, massive city. And they're going to have to defeat it in some way. So they send in two spies, but it's the worst two spies you could possibly imagine because within three verses, they're almost caught. And so Rahab, this prostitute, hides the spies. And the, the, the verses read that they're going to, who are these guys, Rahab, that you're hiding? So they're so bad at being spies that the king or whoever it is knows where they are. And he's trying to get them. But Rahab says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. They're already gone or whatever. I don't remember what she says. But she says something to the effect that they're not there even though they were. And the spies escape. And they go back to Joshua. And here's where I think the story gets so funny. Because what could they have possibly seen? The game plan of the war was, all right, here's what we're going to do, guys. Gather in. We're going to march around the city on day one. That's it. Then on day two, we're going to march around the city again. Day three, guess what we're going to do? March around the city. So seven days. And on that seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times. And then we're going to pull out some trumpets and just start blowing them really loud. So tell me, what did the spies share? What was the great information? I mean, maybe it was something about the walls were really crumbly, and if you blew the right note, they would fall. But my guess is that's not what they found. In fact, I think the only reason they went in there was because God wanted to save one family. In chapter 6 of Joshua, it, it basically the walls do crumble to the ground. And Joshua says, I want you to go in and kill everybody. Don't leave anything alive except this one family, this family, Rahab's family, because they hid the spies. And from this point on, you can follow this family. This family is brought in with the Jews. They're not Jewish, but they were special because they hid the spies. They were treated well. They, they uh, became wealthy. They were blessed. And does anyone have a wild guess of who the son was of Rahab. Go ahead, wild guesses. That's right, Boaz. Boaz, which means there would be one guy who wouldn't care that there was a Moabite woman, that there was someone who wasn't a Jew. There'd be one guy who had a mom who wasn't a Jew, who would totally, totally not care about that. And it just happened to be the one guy in which Ruth was gleaning in the field of. The one guy that would love this woman, see her as special. Basically, it would be the one guy many, many years before that God was preparing in the line of Christ to take on Ruth, to have, then have Obed. It was something that God had been preparing and working on before they ever entered the promised land, before they ever saw the glory of the king in this land. God was already working out a plan that was gonna take care of Naomi, that was gonna take care of Ruth. And as I read that story, I say, this God, this God is always thinking. He's always got a plan. And he is working so far in advance. And someone who's working this far in advance of David and Ruth 
and Naomi and all the way back with Joshua and before the creation of the earth, we have the audacity to think that he's forgotten us, that he isn't still creating a master plan. We can jump ahead and see Revelation in which he's already got the ending done. He's done the beginning, he's done the end, and here we are in the middle. He's got a plan for us and he is working it out and it's beautiful and we have to continue to trust him in it. In your notes, I want you to ponder three questions for your life. That first question is, what do you need to trust God with again? We are very trusting people. We'll get on an airplane and go thousands of miles up in the air with no idea who's on the other side of that, that wall, what that person is doing. We, we don't know, but we just sit in that airplane. Ah, it's no big deal. We're flying up in the air in a metal box. We're trusting. We'll drive on these streets out here and these freeways with all these crazy drivers next to us and be like, no, nah, they're not going to just weave into my, my area, right? And we think, man, they're crazy, but yet here we are driving next to them because we're trusting. We trust and trust and trust. We'll go into restaurants having no idea what they're doing in that back kitchen, but when they bring that food, we're all, this is awesome, right? We trust that it's just great. You guys came today just trusting that everything was going to come together. We trust and trust and trust, and then God says, trust me, and we're like, uh, because we trust in things that we sort of see, but when it comes to God and he says, I have a plan for you, I need you to trust me. I need you to spend time in my word. I need you to have a relationship with me because I want you to understand I have a perfect plan for you. Trust me. Give me your life. Trust me in all things and I'll take care of you. What do you need to trust God with today? The second question for you there is what do you need to give God today? The thing about giving God pieces of yourself we struggle with that because we live in a, a fast food world. And what I mean by that is when we're in the line of like McDonald's or something, we're, we're in a fast food line, if it takes longer than about five minutes, we start to get angry, right? It's like, wait, I, I'm in this line because I want my food fast. And people are starving in the world, but we're going to call managers if this food isn't coming fast enough for us, right? We live in a society in which we expect things to be fast. And then you add that same society that is also a very, I want it now, I'll pay over time, right? We'll pay later. So give me all the cool things because I, my life's short. I'd rather have everything now. I get it. I'm there as with you. I, I want it all now, and I'll just pay as life goes on. So when it comes to God, we have the same society thoughts for him. God, I have been praying and praying and praying I've spent 30 minutes on this, and you still haven't answered it. What are you doing? We have that philosophy. We may not say it out loud like that, but when we're praying for something, and we've been praying for about five minutes, we're thinking, I'm not sure why he hasn't answered this yet. God should already have answered this. He is God. He can do anything. Why is it taking so long? You guys with me on that one? You find yourself doing that all the time, right? And we do the same thing with I want it now. God, I feel like I'm supposed to be in the mission field. Put me out there. 
I'll figure out, you know, my walk with you, my learning the Bible, my relationship. I'll figure all that out on the way, but just let's do it now. We expect whatever it is that we feel like God's doing now, and then we'll pay for it as we go. We'll learn all the details later. When God says, first and foremost, I want you. Give me everything of you. Study my word. Have a relationship with me. Be in prayer. Know me now. And I'll take care of the details later. It's opposite of what we're used to. And it's, it's time that we're not used to. God speaks in Hebrews. Um, he talks about how these many people of faith, 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 all over Hebrews you can read of faith. And at the end it says, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He talks about faith constantly and patience constantly. Faith and patience. Do we have those two characteristics? Because that's what God, God is calling us to. What do you need to give God in your faith and your patience? When we look at, like an, um, I, I sometimes think of like a farmer. And with a farmer, there's a famous story in which he planted the seed in the ground. And the next day he went out and he digged it up because he wanted to see how it was doing. Well, that's not how it works, right? I mean, that's, you have to water it and have faith. You have to have the patience that it's going to form. Inside of a tiny acorn seed is a majestic and beautiful tree. In fact, the blueprints inside of an acorn can create some of the most beautiful trees that you will ever see. These oak trees that will be incredible. And that's a promise we know that's going to happen. If you water that, that seed, if you put nutrients into that seed, if you take care of this seed, it will grow into what God designed it to be. We have to have that same philosophy for you and I. God has put the blueprints of a beautiful and master plan. It is a plan that is perfect and fits into what he is doing. But we have to give the nutrients, the water, we have to feed it with our relationship with him, our reading of the word, our spending time with him. Those blueprints are in there. We have to seek and give God everything and it will become who it's set to be. To be. The third thing on your notes, what is God's bigger plan for you? And this one I always wanna be careful with because God could already be doing stuff with your life. It could already be amazing but how do you need to be thinking about God's bigger plan for you? What is God doing that is, that is beyond your reach? Maybe God has called you to have a greater role in this church. There's a, there's a spot in which he wants you to step up and you know it, but you've been hesitating. Maybe there's a greater role in our community in which you know that you could help our community and do things that would be a blessing and God would do incredible things through that. Maybe it is to go on the mission field, but you're hesitating. Or maybe you've been, you've been seeing someone in your head constantly. You know you're supposed to talk to them about God, but you're not quite ready. You're, you keep hesitating. God's bigger plan. I think of it of, as ants crawling across a masterpiece, a Rembrandt. This is a Rembrandt painting, and if an ant was crawling across it, all he would see is that little blotch of color 
and many parts of this are dark. It could look dark and ugly, and he has no idea that if he could back off of where he's at and keep backing up, he would see a beautiful masterpiece. We are in a unique position. We can see the beginning and the end to God's masterpiece, but we're in the middle of it, and we don't quite know what he's doing with the right now. We don't know what part of the painting it is. All we can see is what we're in. But we have to be able to step back and say, what is God's bigger plan? Because I know he's doing something way bigger. And if he's thinking about Ruth, when they're entering the promised land, if he's thinking about the line of Christ this far in advance, if he's doing all of that and he's continuing through story after story where he's intertwined, all these stories together, he's thinking about me. I am part of the plan. What is that plan for me? Some of you might be here today and you need to back all the way to the beginning in which Ruth just said, I'm all in. You don't really understand any of it, but you're saying, I've seen enough. I've seen enough of this God. I've seen enough of the people that God is leading I've heard enough of this this Bible. I want to be all in. And as we face 2013 in just a few days, you want this to be a new year. And I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you that are ready to say, I'm all in. I want this Christ in my life. I'm ready to move forward and let him be my king. I'm not going to pull you up front. I'm not going to do anything weird. I just want to begin praying for you. If everyone will bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here today and you're saying, that's me, the first step for me is just to say, I'm all in. I'm ready. 2013 is going to be a different year because I'm ready. I want you to raise your hand and say, that's me. Pray for me. This is a new year. This is a new time. Amen. God, I pray for these that have lifted their hand. These that have committed to say, I'm all in. I pray you would bless that. I pray that you would come into them in such a powerful way they would feel you, they would see you. And although we have to have faith and patience, God, that you would continue to open the doors, open the path, show them just enough so that they would feel you, they would understand you, and even what they don't understand, they would step forward and say, I'm in anyway. God, I pray you would bless their lives. God, use us as a church. Use us as a beacon of light around this community and around the world in this new year that we give to you. In Jesus' name, amen.